is fucked up. What do you want to do about it? What do I want to do about it? I want that man there to do something about it. I want him to give us the okay to drive over to Brooklyn, clean some fucking timepieces over there. The following podcast is a Carolina Boys production. Welcome back, everyone, to Crime Entertainment. I am your host, Hollywood Wade, along with my co-host, Jaeger Yancey Tutter. <laughs> uh, you said that mighty slow there, pal. Is that because you enjoyed Labor Day weekend back in our hometown of Darlington, South Carolina, where they turn it out for the race? Yeah, but I had nothing to do with the race whatsoever, but I definitely had everything to do with helping the alcohol content of this town be taken care of, in air quotes. That just means I drunk a lot. <laughs> absolutely i remember back in those days uh i used to throw down an alcoholic beverage or two myself there i hadn't made it to the race in a couple of years we'll see if we can't change that up later on but you know i have business to attend to here i have podcasts to do and boy do we have a good one here today now before we get into it i want to say that you know diving into these things you try to have some, not a full-fledged script, because that takes the organic part out of it, you know, the, the just general conversation. You want to have some key points you want to hit, and that's what I've tried to do with a lot of our guests. And this one here in particular, when we started talking, I think I asked, like, the first question that's normally, like, you know, maybe where'd you grow up? And then after that, I never went back to anything that I had listed. Everything wound up getting covered, and it was probably one of the best interviews I think I've ever done in the realm of just a natural flow. Um, you know, he was very forthright with all of his answers and it just flowed very well. And the guest that we had, and I'm sure again, we're not at a soprano show. If you might uh, think that, cause some of the guests we've had, we are just a big fan of the show or I am anyway, we had on Robert Fanara. Now, if you remember, he played the character Eugene Pontecorvo. You remember him? I do not remember Eugene Ponta Corvo. 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 Okay. Corvo. Oh. Okay. So you remember it was probably around season four. I would say when they're sitting around the um, construction site and they're breaking each other's balls about women or whatever. And one of the guys gets up and knocks the guy in the head. It was little Paulie knocked him in the head with a Snapple bottle and busted it over I his head. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was Eugene. Yeah. Okay. And okay. Then, okay. And then in part six or season six, rather, uh, the very first episode, you know, he comes to Tony and he's wanting to get out. You find out at that time he's actually working with the FBI and he wants to get out and go down to Florida. And Tony tells him that he's not going to be able to do it. And then at the end, he winds up hanging himself. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. It was so, one of the more to be a, a death self-inflicted. It was one of the more brutal deaths on the show just from the way he did it. And the way he kind of struggled after he went off and was hanging there, it was, uh, it was pretty graphic. It was very realistic. I don't know if you've seen that in a while. I might want to boot it up. It's the very first episode of the sixth season where that happens. I got to tell you, pal, if there is a Sopranos trivia game, I'm on your team. <laughs> well, that'd be a mighty wise move of you there. Mighty wise move. 
And, you know, this episode here is going to be coming out on the anniversary. Was It's the 20th anniversary now, isn't it, of September the 11th? Yes, yes, it is. Wow, that does not seem like it's been 20 years ago. I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was a little hungover that morning, and my sister was calling me, telling me that I need to look at the TV. We were being bombed. Now, if you know my sister, we don't talk very much anymore, but and I could have thought that maybe she was bombed at that point in time and just didn't know exactly <laughs> what she was talking about. And I remember I happened to glance over at the TV and I seen that the World Trade Center was already on fire. And about the time when I looked, that was when the second plane hit the tower. And people, you know, kind of grasped what was going on at that point. After the first one, people still weren't really sure if that was an accident or what exactly was going on. And then obviously after the second one hit, it was quite clear that America at that time was under attack. What was your day like on 9-11 that day? You remember where you were? I was at home in bed. And, uh... Leave my mother woke me up and told me what was going on, but of course she also delivered the information extremely poor. <laughs> I'm like half sleep, half awake, and I'm like, wait, do I need to go do something here? Or <laughs> what are you talking about? So finally get the information. Then I remember going into radio where I was working at the time, and we switched everything over to emergency broadcast of news. And took all the music and everything, commercials, all that stuff out of there. It was one of the last times I think media kind of did a really good job in the U.S. getting news out. It wasn't about airing commercials that day. You know, we were under an attack. So, right. They had to take front and center precedent over everything else. Right. And I talked with Robert about that. And this, you know, today there's so much division with your, you know, Democrat, Republican, right wing, left wing, this, that, and other, the world is so divided. I can't remember a time, you know, here in the last few years that we've been as close as we are as a nation until after that attack, when that attack happened, you know, I don't think religion mattered. I don't think sex mattered. I don't think sexual orientation mattered. Race didn't matter. We were for a short period of time, united states of america we were that word united everybody kind of banded together and it was nice and you know it's a shame that it took something along those lines to get us to that point and i'm nowhere in any shape or form saying we need something like that to happen again but we definitely need what happened after that to happen again we it's time for us to come together here and not even if you got a different opinion you and i disagree on about everything there is to disagree on but we get along great, and I don't know why that's so hard for some people these days. Yeah, I mean, even if you tell me it's daylight out there right now, I got to look outside the window. Um, but <laughs> kidding, of course. But uh, yeah, that's what I got to add to that. So I, of course, am not aware of this interview. Or is nine eleven a big part of the interview? It, it wasn't a huge part. It was just you know we okay. recorded this before nine eleven, and then I was I was trying to figure out something that we could do. And then I remembered the part in time we talked about it in there and we kind of spoke about what you and I just did. And so I just thought that it would fit very well because, you know, I'm a big, I guess I don't want to say fan, but I'm a big watcher of everything. Nine 11, you know, how things went down, how it could have been prevented. Obviously there's many conspiracy theories out there. That's a whole nother rabbit hole for a whole nother show, but obviously it was a, you know, a big event in my life. Um, you know, 
my son watches some of it and he kind of asked me some questions because obviously he wasn't born yet. And it was just 20 years ago. It doesn't seem like it's been that long ago, but I guess it it really has when you stop and think about it. So much has changed. So many people still suffering the effects from the rescue workers that went down there and got the asbestos in their system. Mm -hmm. A lot of those guys are turning up and getting sick. So, I mean, it's just, it's a lot of, a lot of history there. You know, it wasn't just a one, one act deal. It wasn't over with, you know, when the dust settles, so to speak, we're still battling it, you know, many years later. Now you went to New York not too long ago. Did you see the new world trade center they built? I don't only see it. I went up into it for the tour that they do there. And it's really kind of a thing to take in the younger kids who weren't born yet. They don't quite have that frame of reference to just how big a deal 9-11 was. Right. The, it's just history in the book. I guess that would be the equivalent of us hearing about uh, wars long before we were thought of. So to see kids kind of running around having a good time just opposed to one of the worst days in American history, that is uh, something to take in up there in New York. So I would actually recommend people go check out the memorial. It is somewhat pricey. Um, in their new building, which I think is one of the tallest in was the Northern Hemisphere. Some there's some ways they have tall buildings to be able to get this record. It's not one of the tallest buildings on the planet anymore. But they they got the record some kind of way for the new memorial building they put up there. <laughs> yeah, when I in went, it was been a few years since I went. They had, of course, the two fountains representing the two towers with all the names in it. Those were there. Mm-hmm. And I think a portion of the 9-11 Museum was open. I don't know if the whole thing was open to the public at that time or not. Now, I did not get a chance to go up into the new one. What's the new One World Trade? Isn't that what it's called? One World Trade. There, yeah, that's it. Now, did you get to go all the way to the top of that, or is it like an observation level? It is. So it's like a combo of those, I, I suppose. It would be an observation level, but it is the, the top of it that the public can go to. There's no outside part or access, but it's just Windows 360 around the thing. So you're always indoors. Okay. I know one of the last times I went, there was a it was a price difference, but you could go to like an observation level, and then for a few bucks more, it was like another 10 floors, and that was what was considered the top, top. Um, gotcha, gotcha. I remember there was a, a great shot. If you remember home alone two with Macaulay Culkin and obviously Joe Pesci and, uh, I forgot what, uh, Daniel Stern, I think where he's roaming around New York there, because that's where that movie takes place. And he's actually on top of the world trade center, looking out of those little, I don't know what you call them. Those little things you put a quarter in and you can look right, through for a right, limited right. time. And the camera kind of pans yep. back. And I personally had never been to New York while the two world trade centers were there. Uh, the ones that, you know, f- tragically fell during 9-11. Did you see those, or was you never went to New York before that? Nope, because my first visit was 2017. It took a while to make it up there, eight, nine hours up the road, believe it or not. So I never got to see the person. I do still have a, um, I don't know why I'm, why I'm blanking here, a sort of magnet thing that has World Trade Centers on it. Right. I do have that on one of the refrigerators there right now to this day. I never saw it in person. All right. Well, I mean, Mr. Fanara is a native New Yorker. So obviously the, the tragedy hit home for him as it did a many of people from New York. And like I said, we spoke about that. We spoke about a number of other things. That man was also in the Irishman. Um, 
you remember the Irishman, I'm sure. So he got to work. That with, one I remember. Pal. Yeah, he got to work <laughs> with Marty Scorsese with that. He said that Marty gave him a little bit of freedom to do what he want with some takes, and they wound up choosing the one that he did, where he kind of done some ad living. So I mean, without any further ado, I think we just get right into it here, ladies and gentlemen. Join us on our sit down with Soprano star, Irishman star, Mr. Robert Fanara here on Crime and Entertainment. Welcome back, everyone, to Crime and Entertainment. We have a very special guest with us this evening. This man starred in one of my favorite television shows, as I've often said on this show, my favorite TV show of all times, The Sopranos. He was in a number of seasons, had a very interesting character we would get into today, and was also in a number of other films that we'll also talk about. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Mr. Robert for now, Robert, how are you, pal? All right. Thank you very much. That's a great intro. I mean, uh, you couldn't get a better intro than that way. Thank you. It's very nice of you. Absolutely. Look here, man. I'm a big fan of yours. I'm a big fan of the Sopranos. You know, you were in The Irishman also, um, yes. American Gangster. I mean, you've done a little stint on Ray Donovan. You've, you've worked with some top-notch talent. But let's start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn originally, uh, Coney Island Hospital. I was born in Coney Island Hospital, and and then we we lived in Brighton Beach, uh, sheep near Sheepshead Bay, and then we moved to uh, Bensonhurst. And then when the Verrazano Bridge opened up to Staten Island, about two or three years later, my dad decided to buy a home, like many many people from Brooklyn, who could afford you know homes were like twenty six thousand dollars. They got a mortgage. They right. It was a home boom here in Staten Island. So they called it the Guinea gangplank. <laughs> when we came, the Brooklynites came and I invaded with all the other Brooklynites. So I grew up in Staten Island. When I got to Staten Island, I really liked it because there was a lot more room around and less building and more chances to, uh, you know, join teams and, and to participate in sports. It seemed everything was so tight in Brooklyn. Right. You had to hustle to get on the basketball court or just get into a game because there were so many kids. But here I had a lot of chances. So that's how, you know, that's how, you know, that's where I grew up, you know. Well, a lot of those names that you just spit out, you know, Brighton Beach and Bensonhurst and all that's, that's mob territory 100%. Was there a big wise guy presence when you were growing up? Did you know that, you know, the wise guys were around in your area? Not that I, nothing I knew of. I mean, there were always, it was always a presence. I never really encountered any of them, although there were certain people I knew that probably were, uh, um, uh, you know, connected, as we say, in right. they were connected. Uh, my father probably did jobs for some of these that were connected. Uh, um, but uh, their presence uh, wasn't so uh, out in the open at my age. Here in Staten Island, <clears throat> excuse me, when I moved to Staten Island, not very much until I became a teenager and I became more aware of uh, of those guys who well, I encountered a few like card games and stuff like that. My brother's friends, who's a, uh, my brother had some friends and, you know, he, my brother's a doctor. Of course, he's not a wise guy. I just want to make that clear, <laughs> but he introduced me to a few of the guys. He used to play cards with them and stuff like that. Right. So who was probably in the area that you grew up? Who was probably the big time guys when you were coming up? Was that, was that before uh, John Gotti's uh, time or? Yeah, well, I I, I grew up with the, the Bilotti's, uh, Tommy Bilotti's. Tommy Bilotti. Tommy Bilotti's nephews. Okay. 
Jimmy and uh, Dom and all the guys, Charlie and great guys. And I grew up, but we never spoke about anything like that about his uncle or anything like that. That was never spoken about. These are all great guys who, who have sanit- you know, work in different areas, construction, sanitation, um, you know, two different, you know, factions. And, but it was uh, John Castellano, mm-hmm. uh, who was the big boss before that was Carlo Gambino, of course. Right. Um, and then the Genovese family, little branches of Genovese family. But those are the guys that were coming up. Basically, and then of course, John Gotti, who right. became the boss of bosses with Neil Delacroach. Yeah. You know? Neil was a Neil was a stone cold gangster for sure. Um, uh, yeah, he was old school. Yeah, he was old school, one hundred percent. Now you mentioned Tommy Bellotti. Now he was what Paul Castellano's underboss, I believe. And those were the two that got gunned down in front of Spark Steakhouse uh, yeah. in the famous hit. You know, in the if you've anybody seen the movie Gotti, that's the famous hit. Now Tony Sirico actually plays one of the hitmen in the HBO film from '96, Gotti with Amado Santi. I think he's one of the hitmen that does the shooting yeah. in there. It's true. He was Tony. Tony was in that, of course. Yeah, that's a, a lot of Tony. Sopranos guys were. A lot yeah, of them. We're all, all working actors trying to you know get a job, and sometimes most times we're kind of pigeonholed. They kind of say you know, and of course you work with great directors like Martin Scorsese and right. And Armand Asante was brilliant. I just saw Armand at the uh, Mob Movie Con, yes, uh, Soprano Con, Mob Movie Con in Atlantic City, and uh, he was brilliant in that film. People remember him as being great in there, and. Uh, I don't think they could have picked anybody better to do Gotti at that point in time. He's a terrific, terrific actor and uh, underrated actor, not really as appreciated as he should be. But, you know, you do your thing and uh, and you and you, you go from thing to thing, and, and that's the way it is as an actor. You know, you're kind of a traveling salesman in a way, you know. Right. And I, I'm not sure if you've seen it down there. Did they unveil it at the Mob Movie Con? They're doing a Gotti 2? I believe so. I don't know too much about the Gotti two uh, film. I, I didn't either. I mean, that's that's a new that's news on me. But uh, you know, it's definitely if he's got something to do with it, I look forward to it. I mean, I was excited about the Travolta film where he played Gotti, and I thought he did a good job. But the movie just went through so many rewrites and holdbacks and setbacks. Like at one time, I think Pacino was scheduled to play Delacroche. Um, Joe Pesci was scheduled to play Angelo Ruggiero. He put on a lot of weight for the role and things just kept getting pushed back. I think Joe actually wound up suing the production. All of them wound up eventually dropping out. And then other, other guys, you know, signed on to play the parts. Uh, you know, Willie DeMeo, he signed, he was Sammy the Bull in the Travolta movie. And I mean, it, it was good, but it just, it was hard to beat that 96 Gotti movie. Everybody just seemed to really nail the roles in the 96. Well, I mean, um, you know, uh, a script has got to be a good script. Uh, the the original Gotti film was a really good script. I think this script with uh, John Travolta, not by his own fault, was right. a little bit weaker. Yeah, that, um, people a little bit more critical, having him being playing the role. Mm-hmm. And of course, the things that you said, people that dropped out. I don't don't know too much about Joe Pesci uh, dropping out or or the other actors or Pacino doing it, but. If things go south like that, um, you know, I mean, if Coppola was doing it, if Marty was doing it, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, there's a lot of factors that, that go into it. But listen, right. even though that happened, it gave uh, Willie a great chance to play Sammy the Bull. And yeah. It gave a lot of opportunities to actors who probably would have been would have not have been hired 
given that the stars, it just, it, it didn't come together as a great film. And that's the unfortunate thing, but you know, you, you give it a shot as an actor, you give it a shot. It's not the actor's fault. It's just the writing, I think, and the way it's put together. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, yeah. I mean, you get online. He's a great actor. He just, man, he's just, I don't know if you ever saw him in paradise alley. One of my greatest films with uh, Stallone wrote this film called and a book, a novel called, Paradise Alley and uh, Armand is just brilliant in that. There's about three brothers, four, maybe three, three, three brothers or four brothers in there, and they're growing up in Philadelphia and their struggle, and uh, it's great. Yeah, I have to check that out. I know he done a movie, um, something where he was on the sea. I don't know if he was like a captain or something like that, but a friend of mine down here, uh, we've got sons the same age, and she said her boyfriend at the time was a stunt double for Armada Santi. And I was just like, really? So I got to talking to him about it and he wasn't a stunt double. He was a body double for shots that Armada couldn't be here for that day. They happened to see him in a bar and they gave him a card and he was, he was a, a body double for him for that particular movie is something C or something like that. I can't remember, but yeah, I, it I'm was filmed. Sure. Yeah. It was filmed here in Charleston, South Carolina, which a lot of movies are where I'm at. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I did the center in uh, South Carolina. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. I filmed the center. In South Carolina with Jessica Beale had a good time doing it. Nice, nice hospitality, nice people down there. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. It's become a melting pot now. Not many people that are here are from here, uh, for sure. Everybody's from everywhere else. Yeah. But uh, so coming I up, I worked with Armour in, in a, a film that I did. It could be seen on Netflix, I believe, or a Prime called Charlie Mantle. We have a pretty good, a couple of good scenes in there. So check it out. Okay. Yeah. Everybody, be sure to check Charlie that Mantle. out. What was the name of it again? Charlie Mantle. Charlie Mantle. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Our listeners go check that lieutenant. out. I play like a bad lieutenant and Almond's involved in it all. He's he's with me. He's he plays my superior. Okay. And we have a little bit of a battle between each other. It's the first time I worked with him. We had a great time. Yeah, okay. He's great. Really honored to work with a guy like that. You think about it, you think about who you work with, it just goes by and then years go by. When you when I look back at it now, wow, I'm really I'm really, really blessed to have worked with Almond Asante, man. Well, I mean, and a lot of guys that you've worked with, you worked sure. with some top-notch talent, you know, Ahmad and, and Jimmy Gandolfini, who we'll get into a little bit later. And yeah, go ahead, man. pretty yeah. much, you know, I don't need to go through and list them individually. The whole cast of The Sopranos, I mean, just that was a landmark television show that just, it, it took acting to another level. And the thing, thing about it was a lot of those guys, they weren't huge name actors, and I know there was reports that Ray Liotta had read for Tony Soprano. And I think if they had got somebody that had a name recognition, I don't know if it would have been the same. You had these guys that a lot of people might've seen here and there, but they didn't know. And they, they got to know them through that first season and they got to know them and have a relationship with them. And I think that was part of the brilliance of the show is they, it, they became like family to the viewers. And if yeah. you'd have had somebody already there, I think that would have took away from it. Uh, that's the, uh, the courage of a man like David Chase to hire a not so known, unknown. He was, James was known, but right. not really on, on mainstream known for true romance. He was brilliant. And, yeah. and, uh, so to take that, to roll the dice, which David did. He made that he, he chose the right horse, you might say. Yeah, he chose the champion horse. And uh, James just was the right actor at the right time. And he had everything going for that role. I mean, the dichotomy of being happy and then miserable at the same time, what he could bring out in the role and what he proved 
he could do on Broadway and the other roles that he did in the other films. He just wasn't a one note actor. Yeah. So he chose the right man. Sometimes it happens that way. You know? yeah. And then, I mean, Edie Falco, she had done Oz. She had done a couple yeah, of stints she, in Oz and, you know, he brought her in Dominic who had done, you know, the Godfather and he was in Gotti as well. Yo, Dom, Dom was, wasn't, uh, Dom wasn't really doing great. Right. Uh, I mean, he, of course, his Johnny Olo was non. No one could compare that as Johnny Olo and the Godfather, terrific. And but he had a lot of years of struggle, mm-hmm. and uh, he deserved everything he got. He was he was ready when that was handed to him. He was ready to go. Yeah, that's yeah. what you want as an actor. You you suffer these times, uh, like you know, since COVID. I don't think I've, jeez, ah, I don't think I've worked maybe uh, indirectly in readings and zooms and everything, but professionally, I haven't worked and. It does something to you, you know, yeah. when, when, when you get a role, you say, uh, you know, I don't really care anymore. I'm just going to do this and, and uh, do it the best I can. And, and it's good enough. And, and he was good enough, man, more than good enough, Dom Genese. Absolutely. Yeah. He killed that role. Um, well, well, coming up, did you always have aspirations to be an actor? Or is that something you kind of found later on in life? Or when did you kind of think that this I mean, acting uh, is something I want to do? Well, I had the bug from my uncle, Monsignor Joseph Fanaro. Um, he used to put on these musicals for Catholic charities in Brooklyn. And before Catholic charities, he had a parish that he would raise money, how to succeed in business. And then later on, when he he, he, he moved up in the, in the clergy as a fundraiser, he put on really great professional productions of Hello, Dolly. And he gets that. Sometimes he would have the arranger, the original arranger, the playwright, all the libretto writers there. And uh, I got the bug. We would always go to see his, his shows. And, and uh, that's how I basically got the bug. You know, I finally was going to audition for one. I forgot the name of the show. It's just too long ago. Uh, but uh, then I dropped out because the dancer that I liked, she dropped out and I said, ah, I'm not gonna go on that. So <laughs> he was upset, you know, but look, you know, dance, it was just being a dancer. I'm not really great. I mean, I can dance and hold a rhythm, but it really wasn't me, but I was willing to do it for that, that girl that had a crush. on. Yeah. That's how I got the bug originally. Yeah. Okay. What was your first acting gig? You remember what your first one was? Well, you know, there were two, there are two, but one's more memorable than the other memorable than the other. There was, I played Harry Brock in Born Yesterday in Patterson, New Jersey. That was my first professional job, but it was a summer stock job. So it was kind of crushing. Right. You, know, you had to crush all the lines together. You had to learn it. And then, but my first real professional job was with um, uh, James Gandolfini in A Streetcar Named Desire. Okay. We toured uh, Scandinavia three months. We started in Sweden. We moved to Finland and then we moved to Norway for three months. Uh, and we did theaters and bars and different places. I played Stanley. He played Mitch. We got paid in Deutschmarks, about 600 Deutschmarks a week. It was great pay. The Deutschmark was so strong. I mean, it was uh, really my first professional gig. And, of course, you couldn't get a better partner to play Mitch than right. um, Jimmy. And he was great. I mean, he just got better and better as, a, as the tour Uh, um, he was very competitive and I remember that and he got better and better as the tour progressed I might have started out a little bit um, out of the gate I was out of the gate quicker than him but at the finish line (laughs) Mr. James Gandolfini my friend was number one 
Yeah. You know, he his Mitch was just and then, of course, he proved it when he played opposite Alec Baldwin in Streetcar Named Desire. He was yep. hired as an understudy, I believe. And then he 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 did he did performances. I don't know how many, but he did. And um, he did <laughs> enough performances to prove that he was a great Mitch, you know. And I great, s- great play, Southern play, Tennessee Williams. Wow, what a play. Yeah. Right. And so and I'd see, I'd seen him in uh, True Romance, and then it was a little, it was a smaller role, but it was a big impact in the role. I don't know if you ever seen the eight millimeter with Nicolas yes. Cage, where yes. he was in there. He was kind of guy that uh, brokered the deal. Nicolas Cage came to him looking for the girl that was in the snuff film. He had a a good role in that. Like people that can take those small roles and turn them into something memorable is you know that's who you know you know can carry a show or a movie or something like that. And he did that in eight millimeter to me, almost outshine, you know, the main bad guy. I forget his name, but the, I think it's Dino Velva was the character's name. I forgot his real name. He was in Armageddon and a few yeah. other things. Yeah. It's funny, uh, Wade, because, you know, you know, from time to time I would run into James in New York when he came back from LA. And I just knew it. There was like a, I just knew James was going to like, he was going to succeed. It yeah. just, he had, a, he had a way about him that, and, and it just had this gut feeling that James was, wow, he's, he can really. And then of course he gave me my big chance and, and, you know, he sent the elevator down as Jack Lemon would say for his friends uh, on season three of Sopranos. He yeah. came into where I was working in Caroline's on Broadway. I was managing a friend of mine, Gordy <laughs> Silver, Great guy. Went up to him at a party and said, hey, if I was you, I'd get my friend Bobby Finau a job on your show. It was season three. Yeah. And he went up to him and said, yo, Bobby, who's, where's Bobby working? You know, I, mean, I remember Bobby. Yeah, I love, love Bobby. Yeah. What's he working at? Works at a comedy club, Caroline's. Well, James, there was a character I was right for him. James came down. He went. He took Joe Faye, his driver, to a few comedy clubs and and he found me down at the comedy club. I walked down because Caroline, you, you descend the stairs on Broadway. I don't know if you've ever been there. I have not. I had to go there one time. It's a great comedy club. Great, great comics. And he descended the stairs. And um, of course, he descended the stairs. He was down there at the bar while I descended the stairs. <laughs> and I saw him at the bar. And we just I said, James, what's happening? And we just picked up where we left off. You know, I mean, I see him one or twice in Hell's Kitchen because he was living there right. from time to time when he was in that L.A. He might have maintained his New York residence. I'm not sure. Anyway, he asked me to audition. Couldn't promise me anything. Um, uh, Chris Walken's wife, Georgiana Walken, and Sheila Jaffe, the casting director, they were across the street from Caroline's on 48th Street or 49th Street in Broadway. So it was great. I just locked the, locked the club. I mean, couple, I mean, I got the auditions the next week, locked the club. Or, you know, I just bared down on the role. And I landed a role on Sopranos because of James. I mean... Wow. I mean, what can I say? I mean, I owe my whole career to the guy. Of course, you know, sometimes I think, you know, the God in heaven, he, he has his hands in everything first. But James, he, if I've ever met a guy that was like God, it would be like J- James in real life. Because I mean, when Charles Lipton asked him, what would you, you know, he, he asked him, what would you, if you had a question for, I think it's one of his questions at the end of the uh, the actor studio series, yeah. he said to him, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I do. If you had to ask God one question, or you had to ask God one thing, what would you ask? And can I, and James said, can I take over for a while? Yeah. He's like, I'm glad you're here. You can take over for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. 
and that taking over for a while is just to make the uh, you know i mean look we do what we do and that i'm not going to get into any religious thing with you wade but i mean that's very fatherly yeah you know you know that's very fatherly to make yeah world a better place so yeah absolutely. right behind you right there smoking a cigar <laughs> Yeah, hey, Jimmy, what's up, man? How you doing, man? Hey, I'm here because of you, brother. Yeah, I mean, he put you in the position to succeed. Obviously, you know, you had to you had to do your part, but he yeah. put you in the position to succeed. Now, that was actually where I was going next. He kind of yeah. put you in that position. Did you read for Eugene right off the bat, or was there anybody no, no, else you read no. for? No, I, I I talked about this on Talking Sopranos, and I've told I've told many people that have interviewed me that. You know, originally I landed the role of Ralph Tefferetto. Really? And, I didn't know that. Uh, yes. Have I they was, aired that episode yet on Talking Sopranos? Because I don't know if I've heard it. Yes. I talk about that on Talking Sopranos. I think it's episode, my episode was 23 or something like that. And now they have a book coming out. It's, I think they, they mention it in the book. Okay. Okay. So I was given that role. I mean, I auditioned for the role. But then, you know, while I was doing it, there was a chemistry between me and Jimmy that David really wasn't happy with. Excuse me. So, um, you know, I mean, it really wasn't working out. Right. So David said, you know, I'm going to bring in, you know, he brought in another actor, Joe Pantaleone came in and, um, and then I became Eugene. Okay. And I asked Terry, who's Eugene? He said, well, figure it out as we go along. And they did figure it out. And I think that a part of Eugene was me, you know, things that I did on the, on offset, when we were around the other actors, they, the writers get to know you and, you know, um, yeah. So that's what happened to me. So if you notice when I, when the credits roll on season three, I'm in the front credits. Okay. I'm in the front credits uh, because I was contracted, you know, to do Ralph. I was in the front credits, but I ended up in the back credits. <laughs> but then I think about it. And God says the first will be last, and the last will be first. So that's something to do with that. Yeah, because I was really happy with my last episode, members only. I got to give me a chance to oh, really yeah. open up, and and uh, so I might have been first, but you know, we'll, uh, last will be first. So I don't know, something like that. Yeah, you know? I was happy with who I played. You know. Yeah, I'm, and Ralph Cifaretto, the character, like you said, played by Joey Pants, he killed that role. Yeah, I mean, you could better get than anybody an antagonist or a bull. Can I curse? Yeah, absolutely. Something? Go ahead. Bull, bull breaker <laughs> and Joe, Joey Pants, because that's Joey Pants. He's yeah. a bull breaker. And but he's a great actor. Great, great actor. And it seemed like everybody that had that role of leadership in that crew, except for Gigi, because Gigi and Tony got along, you know, John Fiora. Um, Richie April was a pain in Tony's ass. Then Ralph was a pain in Tony's ass. I mean, it kind of went on and on and no good luck really came out of having that job. Even Vito later on, you know, he, he had met with a bad ending. So that job wasn't really one to kind of jump at there. You never jumped at it. You were a smart guy. <laughs> yeah. I think it was an act of God, God's <laughs> grace. That, 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 that uh, took me out of that role and, and put me in the role of Eugene, even though I met a, a tragic ending, one might say, but I yeah. thought more of more of a kind of did it to liberate my family to because yeah. I could not get out. And the only way they can basically move was for me to do that. Although it's not a solution. That's what I that's the way I always felt. 
Yeah. You know, although they don't talk about that on Sopranos. Michael calls me a mutt and <laughs> they say, you know, they talk about me. Uh, I think uh, Maureen Van Zandt, Gabriel Dante talks to me, talks about me and with Hesh. Yeah. They talk a little bit about me, but, you know, it didn't really matter because, you know, that's the reason why I did it. If anyone asks me, I always tell them that, you know, I think it's obvious. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it is. I mean, you kind of, you're back into that corner and. <laughs> To look at the children, the, everything I've had in Florida that I can't get what I want. And the only way they can get back to Florida is by me doing, I mean, like Harry Carey, kind of like, to yeah. me, it was a Japanese thing. Wait, yeah. You know? No, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, it, know, you never saw Eugene with the noodles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you, you had that great kill where you went and you done the kill to try to get Tony to persuaded to let you go. Yeah. I heard it was like one of the top 10 hits on Sopranos, like hit, you know, like the uh, killings. It made, I think made eight or seven. Something. Yeah. My cousin was telling me that today. Now I got to ask you to drop in the gun thing. Was that written into the script? Was that kind of a Godfather homage? Because that's not something you want to do. I mean, I'm not condoning killing anybody here. Let's get that straight right now. But if you do it, it's probably not good to drop the gun. Well, the gun was written that it, it would be untraceable in the script. Okay. The gun, the gun was left at the scene like the gun was left on top of uh, Jimmy Hoffa. The same thing uh, that De Niro did. So that's a feasible thing that could happen. Let me yeah. just say that. So the gun. But I think that, yes, to me, it was uh, a homage to the Godfather from myself. I think Eugene watched films and I think that he was influenced to drop that gun like that. I mean, <laughs> and he had gloves on, of course, and it was untraceable. But I think that I think it was somewhat a, a choice that I made uh, as Eugene. And it was kind of, you know, I said they say that uh, great actors steal. So <laughs> I thought it. Why not? You yeah. Know? And Tim Van Patten, a great director. He uh he thought it was cool enough to leave it. You know, he didn't say, oh, do another take and just, um, you know, don't drop the gun. You know, right. he, he left it that way. So he was part in, in partly involved in that. And I think it worked. I don't know about you. I liked it. Yeah. No. Yeah. I did like it. I mean, you always well, you're kind questioning of... its feasibility. Is yeah. What you're saying. Yeah. But as I said to you, if, if it's you the guns untraceable. Yes. As I did in Irishman. Yes. And many other films, but I'm just giving you an example of a current film at a time when behavior like that with pistols were left behind. And of yeah. course, and of course it was done in the Godfather too. So we know right. that. Yeah. A little DNA wasn't a big factor back in those days. That wasn't something that, uh, you know, is, is as prevalent nowadays for sure. Well, yeah. And, and but like you said, if you get in the gun and it's hot and the serial numbers are filed, there's really no way to to trace it back to you either. If you're you know wearing gloves and things like that, so yeah, I mean, what you're saying makes sense, and it's definitely you know like like we spoke of was a homage to the Godfather for sure. And yeah, That's what, yeah, I, that, I put that in myself. Yeah. Okay. Now, when you read, and I know we're backtracking a little bit, but when you read for The Sopranos, did you read for David Chase at all, or was it was it other people course, that you yeah, read for? Yeah, I read for the whole commission. We called yeah. it the commission. They had, you know, you would read for uh, for uh, George Ann, and Sheila wasn't, I think Sheila was taking care of the uh, L.A. office because they divided, and uh, she might have been back and forth to New York, but uh, George Ann was doing the uh, casting in New York, and... Uh, 
once I got the call back, I was called back to Silver Cup Studios to read for David and the whole, because David would, would um, invite the whole crew, a costume designer, um, assistant director, director of the episode. And um, it was like, it was terrifying. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> I said my prayers before I went in. And the only thing that kept me together were my prayers. Let me tell you. He he seemed (laughs) like an intimidating. Every big role or everything, it was done that way. And it was scary. Yeah. He seems like an intimidating presence, just him. So I would imagine him and 15 other people or so in there. I'm just spitballing a number, but that that would have to be pressure. (laughs) It's not that he's intimidating. He's like a gnome. Right, you just know, like a leprechaun that that uh, he pops up everywhere that you don't really know. He, I guess, you could say that probably he's a great poker player. Yeah, he's just a, you, you. It seems to me, and I could be totally wrong, but it seems to me that you could nail a scene, or you could be totally horrible, and you're going to get the same reaction from him, at least off the rip. Maybe, you know, yeah, it, it's I mean, just it's yeah, like he I just. Mean, I think that, but you know, as a as a director, you you, you know, I mean. It's tough. Actors, they need direction. Sometimes it, their look is just not right for the role, you know. Right. Or, you, or you think, you know, like Kazan, you know, he, he was smart enough to get to know the actor, have discussions with him. Right. It just was in TV. It's like, show me what you can do. But uh, there are directors in film that like to sit down with the actor to get to know them. Uh, and to get a gut feeling that the actor could, Martin Scorsese, Marty Scorsese is like that, to get a gut feeling that the actor can can do it. Because uh, auditions, as Kazan said, could be deceiving. An actor could be terrific in, in the audition, but then when you're on set and things change and, and it's not, you know, you have to kind of be casting as everything. And that's what happens sometimes, you know, right. in TV at least, you know, so. Right. Now, you come on in season three. I mean, now Sopranos is firing on all cylinders. And I'll be honest, when I first seen the show, when it was on in its first two seasons, I knew about the show. I was kind of in my early partying days, so I didn't really, I don't even know if I had HBO at the time. But I was at a guy's house, and I know the, the season premiere of three came on. And I think there's a scene when Tony's leaving, he's with Furio and he goes and he taps on the hood of the, or the, or stops in front of the FBI. And he's like, Hey, I'm just going up to the store. You don't have to follow me like last week. And I was yeah. like, well, that's kind of funny. I like that. So I wound up watching that whole thing and I'm just like, all right, well, you know what? I don't want to get too deep into this. I want to go back from the front. So I went back and I got the first two seasons, which at that time was a lot of money. I mean, those box sets on DVD back then, they were about a hundred bucks a piece. Yes, they were. And and I bought those and and got caught up and then I subscribed to HBO and then I didn't miss a Sunday. It was like it was my church every Sunday night. It was religion for me to watch many, the Sopranos. Many Americans, it was a religion, yeah. religious thing. I mean, well, I wouldn't want to call it religion. It was a <laughs> excessive addiction, you might yeah, say. Yeah, addiction. Yeah, that might be the better word for it, addiction. Like a, a, like a, like a, 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 a cavity, and you put your tongue on that cavity, it's like it's there. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I was I was there every Sunday night, like you said, as a lot of people were. What was your first episode in season three? Were you in the I, I work with, you know, I saw Vito Antifermo at the uh, a, a Mob Movie Con. He made an appearance, 
And I remember being with Ralph knocking on someone's door and having a baseball bat. And uh, I think hitting that person with a baseball bat, I think me and Vito roughed the guy up with Ralph. Okay. Collect some money. That was my very first scene on the show. Okay. Yeah, I remember that. I think it was when the, something about a, I remember Ralphie like sitting in the car yes. saying, Tony doesn't want no more fires. So instead of the fires, y'all beat the guy up with some bats. Yes, I think it was, it, was. it was a lot of fun. So in season three, like we mentioned, you know, obviously Jackie Jr. has the big arc. You know, Ralph kind of has the big arc with him. What was some of your most memorable scenes, either that you were in or that you've seen from season three? What's kind of some things that stick out for you in season three? I don't know. Was Columbus Day in season three? I had a really great time doing Columbus Day with uh, Sylvia. I'm pretty sure it was. I'm pretty sure it was in season three. I had a really great time with blowing my nose. I I really thought I really loved that bit. You know, what is one of my favorite times, you know, of, you know, just fooling around with the guys and, and, you know, blowing my nose and him getting annoyed and everything. It may have been in four. It might have been four. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was in four. Season three was, uh, with John uh, Fury, who, who basically, you know, of course, then Ralph, then he, you know, then he, you know, Ralph came came in to play. I guess when Ralph makes the phone call to uh, Paulie Walnut's mom. Yeah, yeah. That was a lot of fun. I had a great time laughing, you know, in, in that scene. That was that was one of the memorable scenes. In, in, <laughs> oh, was this a rodent in the rectal passage or something like that? <laughs> I had some fun with John Fiore too. Uh, John's a great actor. Uh, uh, with John, you know, playing cards at the at the craps table, uh, you know, playing craps, and and we had some fun too. Finding him on the bathroom ball wasn't great for him. But yeah, we we talked about I mean, actually. What the, what the fuck are you looking at? Go call nine one one. That was fun. Yeah, was was that you that found him? Was that you that kicked in the door? You were there. I know. Yeah. That was me. Yeah. I okay. Said to, I said, to, you know, <laughs> you know what the fuck are you looking at? Call nine one one. Ray, Ray Friends, another good actor. Ray. Yeah, we talked with John last week on the show. He was a fantastic interview, and that was what he he said when he got the call. He's like, you know, back in those days, you had to, you know, the answering machines, and you know, he's thinking, oh, it might be something good, and then obviously he got the news, and he's like, all right, well, you know. If I got to go, I got to go. So, you know, who's taking me out? Am I going out in a blaze of glory? What it is? And they're like, how are you going to die on the toilet? And he's like, are you serious? Like, is that really? That's how I'm going to go? There's nothing we can do on the Pisha do. On the Pisha do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you're written. It's just the way it is. They, they, the writers write the way they write. I mean, sometimes the writers got ideas like Ralphie shooting baskets with Vito. Yeah. Uh, one time at uh, one of the times we were on the set at Silver Cup, we started shooting. They had a basketball. Some of the uh, the local union guys pull out a basketball hoop and we started shooting baskets and Ralph's shooting baskets. Vito was shooting. I was shooting baskets. That's how they got the idea to have that little, you know, snippet scene with him. Yeah. And, and, and Vito puts his hand out, you know, and he's shooting baskets. I don't know if they were playing for money, but. There are different things in real life that we that the writers would get ideas from, like the Furio moment with uh, Federico at the racetrack with Pai and Mai. He won, and Tony looks at it and says, what'd you win? He put $2 on a horse. I was there when that happened. Actually, I created that scene because we were at the Breeders' Cup, 
And he, and Freddie said, you know, I want, I want it. So I never forget. He said, so let me see your ticket. Cause I'm a, I'm a horse player. I love to play horses. I yeah. like to handicap horses. And I said, let me see your ticket. He had $2 on it on an $8 horse, you know, <laughs> one, or maybe four to one, uh, five to one chest. He won $16. Like, <laughs> like, the riders were Robin and Mitch were there. Mitch Burgess. Yeah. They got that idea. So they got ideas from real life too. You know I mean? From, us, our behavior. That's a lot of TV's done that way. Yeah. Know, they get to know the actor, you know, and, uh, yeah, that's the way they, that's the way it's done. And because, you know, film scripts are different. There's a trajectory, uh, a beginning. Well, it doesn't have to be an end, but usually there is. Yeah. In Rocky, there's an end. He goes the distance in many films, Shawshank Redemption, uh, you know, he escapes and, you know, and, and he's free and, yeah, and I'm not it's sure if it was the best thing that you know. Hope is a good thing. Sometimes the best and good, no good thing ever dies. You know, so yeah. I mean, I just love that film. But I mean, you know, a lot of in TV, it's a little bit of different. Uh, it's a little bit more open ended. You know, of course, everyone did, didn't like the ending of Sopranos. I don't know if you did, but I liked it. Ah, I was. <laughs> I, it, it's perplexing, man. It's perplexing because. You know, I was like, God, you know, I wish there would have been a wrap up. But then the more I looked into it and the more I kind of looked at it from a different set of eyes, so to speak, I'm like, how do you wrap that up? You know, how do you put a bow on a show like that? And I think the what he did, the way he did it was brilliant. Because it leaves it into t- interpretation of the the viewer and we're still talking about you and I are talking about it now. What twenty five years later, twenty plus years later? I mean, it's it's crazy. And I don't know if you've seen it. I know there's a lot of Sopranos groups out there. There's a lot of YouTube videos out there. There's a lot of people that break down the ending. And I've watched a lot of them, and most of them I can dismiss of people just kind of putting their own spin on something. But there was one I seen, and it was about three weeks ago. And it goes deep, so you'll have to buckle in here. But in the last episode, if you remember, AJ had a girl with him sitting on the couch. It was a girl he was talking to, and he was talking with his mom. They were in the the Soprano house, and Edie says, or Carmela says, we're going to do dinner at Holston's. So she hears that, and they freeze frame it on her. She's kind of like, you know, looking like she hears that. Then they cut to the guy and I can't remember his name, but he was the one up under Phil and that New York crew. He was right up under Phil. He was the one that Tony went to and kind of gave him the okay to go ahead and take Phil out. I can't remember his name, but he was in there for the last couple of seasons. They're talking about who they're going to take out. They're talking about they're going to take out Sil. They're going to take out Bobby and all those. And they freeze frame that scene. And... I don't know if he says something about a granddaughter or something like that about a daughter, but you see a picture in that scene that looks identical to the girl that was sitting on the couch with AJ. And so the correlation that they're putting is that girl is a plant in there to talk to AJ to figure out where they can get in to put the hit on Tony. It it might be totally off the rails, but it, it makes you think. Because she didn't know where they were going that night. And it looks just like her in that picture. They freeze frame it and they, they do a side by side. And it's it's damn close, man. I'll tell you, it's damn close. 
Well, that get, that's just given the because uh, that's the first theory that I, I heard of that theory that that uh, the freeze frame theory I mean, we might call it. Uh, yeah. Um, um, <laughs> Peter Wolf freeze frame, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, it just le- it, it lends itself to the, to what you said before. Everyone can figure out their own ending. Maybe it was placed in there for people to. David placed in there. He probably wouldn't admit to it, but for people to think about like the Beatles did, and Paul is dead. And, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Uh, which he wasn't. And he crossed Abbey Road without socks on. And I think that was just the way he felt. I don't think there was anything. I think he talked about it, you know. And I, I want to see the Hulu special with Paul McCartney. But getting back to Sopranos um, and that episode, yeah, I think it lent, that lends itself to what you're saying. I mean, um, it being uh, it lends itself to the interpretation. I think that Peter Bogdanovich's uh, view of a great director and, and, and brilliant film uh, critic and, and reviewer and, and a lover of uh, cinema um, said it best that you know, there's a lot of symbolism uh, in the ending, uh, the members only jacket. The, yeah. You know, the uh, the brothers who were, you know, the brothers who were involved in it, it was symbolistic of a cross section of America. Uh, and also that, uh, you know, Tony really soprano is never going to die. You know, I mean, well, and that's proven to be true, given the the the, the rash uh, uh, fluctuation or the pro, um, the dissemination of the the, the um, covid vaccination cards <laughs> the black hand is everywhere yeah. you know I mean? <laughs> who's distributing those i mean it, will it ever end i don't think it will ever end i think it's going to go to the end of the world until that happens so god comes back or whatever i mean um it, you know bogdanovich's view uh, uh it really i thought was the best description of it's a metaphor for the america yeah, and how we live in, in the time that we live in. Yeah, and and there was keys that if you picked up throughout that series, especially in the season six, you know when Bobby and Tony are in the boat and they're sitting there up there. It's before they had their fight sequence, you know. For uh, I forgot what that what that episode was, but it was kind of the first of the second half of season six, where they're talking and he's like, "I bet you don't even hear it when it happens," you know, and. Uh, that's one that I think he David Chase put in there, knowing what he was going to do, just to kind of give you because you go black, so you don't really know what happens, so you don't you don't realize that it's happened. But like I said, again, it's left up to the viewer, and I think that's the brilliant way. It did. I thought my DVR cut out. I was so mad because I was working third shift at the time, and this was before you could get on the phone and find out. I didn't really have to worry about spoilers, but I had my DVR set, and my wife was like, "You're going to go nuts." She watched it because by that time she was into it too, like I was. And I was working night shift. I would go in on Sunday nights. I hated it. I hated missing Sopranos. So I get home that morning. I'm I'm driving 95 home, you know, trying to get home and watch, you know. And I'm sitting there and I'm just like, the damn DVR cut off. Right, right here. And she's like, no, that's how it ended. It went black. And I was just like, oh, gosh. And I mean, it was, it was just groundbreaking, mind-blowing, breathtaking all at once. I think that everyone wants this, uh, you know, payoff, but life is really truly not like that. Things go on. I mean, a soldier, you know, he saves a life, he's given a medal, 
but then he has to deal with PTSD. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. We don't see the PTSD. We just see that the metal. And so I think David gave you an idea that, you know, life goes on and it's always going to be here. And, and, you know, it doesn't always end in, for instance, the Gotti film ends in Gotti being taken down. It right. doesn't always end that way. I think a lot of people wanted to see that. They wanted to see Tony Soprano maybe murdered or killed. Maybe not, but they wanted this big fight or whatever. And I don't think they would have been satisfied with him going to jail like yeah. John Gotti did. I think they would have fucking hated that. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, so, I mean, I think David's choice was, was the right, was more to real life. I mean, he was just a genius. Yeah, and they wouldn't have they wouldn't have been satisfied either way. Had he gotten killed, they'd have been pissed right. that they got the drop on him. Had it just went off, they'd have been you know if he'd have just finished eating dinner and went off, they'd have been like, well, you know that was anticlimactic. So he was in a no win situation. I mean, you want to blow him up like they did, yeah. like Marty did with uh, Scorsese did with uh, uh, Marty did with in Casino. With yeah, the, Ace Rothstein's character would have blew him up in the car. Rothstein. Yeah. But he, he lived through that. It could have yeah. been that. You know, I mean, it's a lot different. But, you know, listen, it is what it is. And I thought it was great. And, you know. So out of all the scenes you, you were in from three all the way to six, obviously you had some memorable scenes throughout there. You know, one of the ones that I remember is when you're in the hospital. And I forgot who that was in the hospital. Maybe it was uh, probably Max. Yeah, Max, Max Casella. Yeah. And he was like, you know, what do you want to do about it? He's like, what do I want to do? I want that man there to do something about it. I want to give him the okay to go to Brooklyn and clean some fucking timepieces over there. I remember that. And then obviously you smacking little Paulie at the, or yeah. Uh, well, Paulie with the Snapple at the, uh, at the construction site. Got that on the first take. Really? So was that, what was that? A sugar water? Yeah. Yeah. Sugar, sugar cane. And I guess there's a special company that makes that. Yeah. And that particular prop, and and uh, I remember getting it on the first. Everyone was so fuck. Everyone was so happy because, and you know, a little piece went into Jeff Marchetti's eye because he Jeff who played a little. I forgot what Jeff's. Anyway, one of the actors went. Jeff Marchetti went into his eyes, and and um, but it wasn't serious. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, Call, who played little Paulie, um, he was great. He's a great writer too, and uh, he was all good about it. And uh, we, it was nice to get on the first take because he didn't have to go through that so many times. You know? Yeah. And, and you know, everyone knew that when they, when they saw that that was going to be pretty good. You know, I, I yeah. said, "Well, yeah, get the smash." Even Edie <laughs> said, "Hey, you get to smash the guy over in, in the head. That's good." <laughs> yeah. And all this, all this training, Shakespeare, oh, for Muse of Fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, kingdom for a stage all reduced to a <laughs> immortalized in a Snapple bottle. You know how many people came up to me? They still do. I love that Snapple bottle. <laughs> <laughs> and the way you look, I've seen that look around certain people. You know, when you when he said the little comeback to you about the girl with the mustache and you just go, what'd you say? What, what'd you say? And you got that, that swagger nod, like I'm fixing to knock the hell out of you. And you get up and you just lay him out there in the chair. I mean, that was, it was classic. It was brilliantly done. Um, and then going forward, which, which out of those seasons that you were in, which one was your favorite to shoot out of three, four, five, and six? Which one was your favorite? Well, 
The one that I really truly liked, I mean, it can only be one was members only because yeah. I got a real chance to have, uh, you know, the other stuff was great. But then I, I was given an episode that I had a, a story arc, you, mm-hmm. know, you know, and for an actor who, who's been in theater, I've done some theater um, and I've done some films too, you know, in the sense of having a trajectory of where you're going. Right. Um, it, that was my favorite one. Cause I got a chance to work with, do scenes with Jimmy, do scenes with, with Michael. I love that scene that we did and, you know, clean some time, you know, yeah. Time's up, and you know, in the with the Frankfurters, and and uh, to work with him, to work with with uh, Stevie Van Zant and Silvio, that and and Jimmy, and, and all the actors there. It, it and and of course my wife Suzanne Dodonna, who did a great job. Yeah, my one. What now? Was she and 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 Grace Grace Van Patten, who played my daughter. That was Tim's Tim Van Patten's daughter. Who played uh and she was really grace i mean it was weird because the work with her it, this was a the episode reminded me of grace because it was really great to work on i knew that see i knew wade that and you know what should i call you chip or wait no wade's fine yeah wait wait you know that people would basically identify with the situation yeah of wanting to get out of something of, of, of your life and to change careers. But how many of us are stuck in that? It's too late. You can't do it one way or the other. Not that you have a Tony Soprano telling you, you can't get out of the mob, but you just can't change midstream. You, you've worked at a company for years and you have a dream of getting out, but it's just not feasible. The dream is not feasible for happening. So people would identify with that. It's like Brando. I, I correlated to, to Brando who said, that when he did Waterfront, that the speech, everyone remembers the speech. I could have been somebody, uh, you know, uh, instead of a bum, you know, I could have been a contender. Yeah. He said that, you know, that scene with Steiger, that uh, the writing was so great that uh, not to say that another actor could have did it as good as he did it, but people would have remembered that scene because all people can identify with being a contender could have been somebody, but yeah. they got a bad break along the way. So Eugene's character wanted to get out. I knew that people would remember me basically by that. And it was better to me. I mean, even though it was a little, it was like a, a meal and a pill. You know what I mean? It was like yeah. a capsule of, of a life uh, of, and I, that's why I loved the episode and I loved doing it. Now, did David tell you that you were going out beforehand? Did he kind of let you know? Did you know in season five when it was wrapping or did you not find out till later? How did that happen? Well, before we started shooting, I started getting phone calls from people saying, "Hey, you know that you, you know they're, they're casting your wife, uh, and you got a kid. You know that you have an older kid, uh, um, and they're casting that. And they, so they must be opening up your character. What's going on?" I said, "Wow, that's pretty cool." I, you know, they're you know the casting. My agent said that you know they're getting they're casting because you know he probably sent some of his clients to to audition. You know, not, not that any of them, uh, Eric. Faber might, you know, passed away. God bless him. You know, he's a great guy. Um, um, so, you, you know, I started getting inklings that there, but I did get a call after all those things were uh, all the rumors and everything were over that in my family and uh, David did call me. So I got great news. Uh, I have good news. I got bad news, Bobby, uh, which one first. Ah, I said, give me the good news first. I said, well, you wrote an episode. It's all about Eugene. I mean, the whole episode basically is you're part of the episode in a big way. 
What's the bad news? Well, you're dead. <laughs> That's they put you're dead. <laughs> so he didn't tell me how it was going to happen until I read the script. But I, I was really happy. You know, I was, of course, I wasn't happy when he told me I was dead. Right. But I was happy that, um, you know, that I would play a big part in that season opener. Yeah. Know? And it worked out for me because I really loved it. It was great. Now, your death is as unlike a lot of them on the show. Obviously, this is a mob TV show, so most people are getting killed in brutal, brutal ways. But your death was very visually brutal. Like, I mean, it, I, I've seen people hang themselves in scenes before, and it was it wasn't as I don't know real feeling as yours. Like just the way you when you come off that chair, the way you struggled, and the way you try to fight it. It was really, really real. It, it's like it you felt, you know, watching it, you felt what you were feeling there. I mean, how did you feel doing that? Could you tell that it was, you know, going to be something special being watched back? Um, I know that, you know, before Eugene, uh, uh, you know, kind of pushes the, the boxes away, whatever it was, a chair, I think it was a, yeah, I think you were on a chair or a box yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah some, something like that. I can't remember. I, uh, I, 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 I created this space for myself, you know. This and, and Tim said, "Just stay there where you're at because it's great." You know, you, you see his eyes. Of course, after the, the pictures, you see. You know, I, I created this whole hypnotic thing of my past, and I really was like there, and it really was scary. And of course, then jumping off. I just kind of improvised with the uh, I did do a little research about the, the, the kinetic of the, of the feet of the leg shifting that, right. The, you know, which everyone points out. I did do a little bit of that, that the nerves had that happens. Someone told me that you know, I talked to my brother about it was a doctor. And he said that, that, you know, there's a little research about that, but other than that, it was basically improvised. And of course, with the help of Pete Bogosi, the great uh, stunt coordinator, who had flown in a uh, brace, a body brace from California to make sure that I was safe. I really felt safe. I wasn't going to fall off there. Yeah. So we, we did it and a uh, couple of takes and uh, I felt good about it. You know, uh, people say that way that, you know, you try to save your life. And I said, I don't, I don't think it was a question of saving my life. It's a question like <laughs> of cutting yourself and saying, ouch, that hurts. You know, it was more like that. It, God, it fucking hurts, man. You know, you know, it's different than just shooting yourself in the head. You know? Yeah, it was more like you know, it was hurting me. You know, so I mean, it was more. I didn't. Some people say, "Oh, you try to get up." No, but it's a reaction that you would. Yeah, that 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 reflex alone is like God. What's going on? You know. Yeah. You know, so, and I, I know they they allude to it in the show, and a lot of people say, you know, well, that's a coward's way out. And, you know, things like that. Talked about that, yes. I don't know if I can say that 100% that that's a coward's way out because that takes a lot of balls to do something like that because there's no coming back from it. Whether you do it like that or whether you choose to do it any other way, that is final. There is no repeats. There is no redos. There is no cuts. There, That's it, and it's over. So to me personally, I'm not condoning that, you know, by any means whatsoever, but that is balls to the utmost to do something like that. Because like you said, it's, it's final and that's it. And there's no going back. 
You know, I had some people who called me who were suicidal that said, you know, you saved my life. You know what I mean? I, I saw that scene. Wow. With you and they actually wanted, I remember, I recall one person telling me that online, a Facebook friend saying that really, that scene that you did that really, it saved me from, you know, from doing that. You know, I mean, uh, any death like that is, is, is hard. I think that, um, David kept on adding scenes, uh, you know, telling, talking to the FBI and Ray Curdo died and it, it, I was going to be their new informant. You wanted the walls to close in on me. Right. And they closed in on me to a point where, you know what I mean? I realized that I wasn't going to have this new dream, which the dream wasn't going to happen. To me, it was always the dream doesn't happen, but at least my family could have some sort of solace because it's not going to happen for them. Right. And to me, I did it for them. Yeah. Of course, it's not written in there, but I do think there are, are hints of it, especially with the shell mm-hmm. uh, and, and the pictures into the shell um, and the shell, the past trying to, you know, I'll never have the dream. I thought it was brilliant. That was a great touch, you know. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, although they spoke about me in a different way. He's a mutt. And I think Michael said that to me, it didn't matter. Cause I know, you know, why I did it. You know, I know why Eugene did it. It doesn't have to be explained in, in the episode to me. That's what it meant. To yeah. Me. Yeah. Well, but everybody could have their own interpretation of it. You right. did too. Um, and uh, not everyone says, and some people say, you know, you did it cause you were a rat. I, don't, I say, no, I'm not. I know I didn't, I did it, but I, I disagree, but they have the right to their opinion. Well, and it's like you said, you were boxed in. The walls were closing in. You had the FBI over here. You got Tony over here. Eventually, wife. that's going to come to a head. You got your wife over here. You know, problems with your kid over here. It's you got it from every direction, and that's usually yeah, that's usually what leads people to do things like that when they have it coming from every direction. It's not usually one thing that does it. It's a a culmination of things, and that was kind of exactly what your character was going through. Absolutely, Wade. And even that, even the, even what my son with the substance abuse, that was like, I, we don't really talk. To, I don't talk to too many people about it. You're one of the people I will tell that it's, it's affected a lot of families, life, substance abuse, uh, mm-hmm. Oxycontin, uh, which led to heroin. And uh, it's affected my family. I lost my nephew. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Thank you very much. But uh, it was kind of weird that uh, uh, later on that that would happen to me in my life. You know what I mean? Uh, I miss him so much, Joseph. Um, but uh, um, listen, you know, David, what I wanted to say here is that he was ahead of his time in many, many different things. And that was one of the scenes I thought that he was ahead of his time because later on, there were so many deaths to children, or young, young, young adults like my nephew that uh, succumbed to uh, heroin and things like that. Yeah. So he was really, truly ahead of his time. He never said anything about it, but he did broach the subject. He wasn't afraid to broach that subject. And for that, I give David Chase a lot of credit because it was a challenging situation that he, he brought up. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and like you mentioned, the opioid crisis is still, you know, a big deal in our youth today. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. rampant. It's everywhere. And, you know, they're finally starting to clamp down on it a little bit with the doctor's but I mean, for a while, it was just you could go to a doctor and they would just write those things out, you know, barely yeah, well, looking at you. It became hard to get. And then in New York, they started to uh, give out uh, heroin uh, for $10 bags. And then that and then, of course, 
the heroin was laced with fentanyl. Yes. And that was such a deadly combination. And sometimes, you know, I, you know, I understand addiction because um, there are things in my life that I understand. I won't mention them here that how you walk a fine line in life and that how close you are to maybe doing something that's not correct. But there are some things like that particular addiction that, like you said, uh, hanging myself is final. That's a finality to that also. Whereas there are other addictions. Okay. Let's just mention alcoholism, mm-hmm. you know, not that I ever want, you know, but it doesn't matter. Cause it's just an example that the alcoholism, you know, just need that little touch and then bam, that's it, you know, and yeah. then you're, and you're off. It could be gambling, bam, yeah. and then you're off. Then you're chasing and you're trying to make your money back and yeah. you're losing yeah. thousands. How many times has that happened? Oh yeah. They covered you know, it in the Sopranos season yes, two. They, and they covered it in uh Marty Scorsese covered it in, uh, in one of his films to casino. Yes. Uh, and he talks about, um, you know, he talks about Rothstein, you know, talks about that whole, that whole thing. He, he wasn't, he won $50 million, whatever he won. And then all of a sudden it took one little thing. They know, they know how to get you, man. Cause yeah. You know? Yeah. The whale that won all the money and then they got him back in there. Cause it's, it's right. not some, I I can't remember where I heard it from, but it, it explains it perfect because I like to throw some money down on a football game here or there. I know, we it's, do it here in New York all yeah, the time. It's parlays, not. Parlay, five yeah, team parlays. Yeah. It's not the money. You you could, I think a millionaire, it's it's, it's not, not the money that you're winning, whether it's a 5000 or $5 million or $5. It's that excitement that you're watching the Browns and the Ravens on a Monday night to hit your parlay when otherwise you wouldn't give a shit about the Browns and the Ray or whatever team, you know, I'm using that for an example. Dopamine like the drugs do. Exactly. It's the same thing. Like when you watch Sopranos, there was dopamine going through you. I mean, it was that thrill. You know what I mean? That goes through you. You know, when I'm acting, you get that in the theater, that, uh, that instant rush with the audience, but with a live audience, but when you're on the set, it's great when you're doing it, but when you see it, there's a separation of that. What we're talking about that right. dopamine. Yeah. Uh, you know, that if I'm saying that word, right. Yeah. Correctly. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's, I think you're right. Yeah. Dopamine, 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 yeah. dopamine. So, I mean, that that's the thing people say, what do you like better? You know, I kind of like, I love doing film, but I get a, better satisfaction with theater because it's like i don't know it's something weird about the audience watching him then a great my mentor richard bright who played al miri on the godfather in the godfather he played uh michael michael corleone's uh luca brazzi yeah and he played in many many films beside that richard uh marathon man uh so many great films um he always said that, uh, well, you know, you got to replace, you got to think of the camera, all the thousands of people watching you when you see that camera. And that's how you kind of can transfer what you love to do in the theater to doing it on film, which is a pretty good way to, you know. So, I mean, you see that, you know, the camera, you know, it's there and it's like an audience member, but think of how many people it's going to reach. Yeah. Millions people and it gives you that dopamine adrenaline like you need you know like you 
You know what I mean? It was he was really a smart man, very smart man. Lost him unfortunately to a terrible accident in New York. So yeah. Uh, well, sorry to yeah. hear about that for sure. Yeah. Um, so after Sopranos, a little bit later on, you get cast in a film that took a long time to get made. It, it was kind of you know similar to the Gotti film when Travolta it went through a lot of different hands that finally wound up with Martin Scorsese which was The Irishman. I know they had a lot of different things they had to do to get that film done and made and get, you know, Bob transformed back to his younger self and then, you know, transgressions through the film. How did you enjoy working on that film? Was it was that a good time or was it stressful or how was that? Well, no, because um, I worked with Marty on vinyl. Right. I love vinyl. Yeah, I got a chance to work with him, and he just creates this this set that you guarantee to have a good performance. He puts you at ease, you know. You know what I mean? Tells you just do what you want to do there, or gives you a note, and you and you do it. But there's never any kind of like hierarchy, or he's just a regular guy. I mean, basically, I mean, I know guys like Marty from my neighborhood. You know what I mean? Right. Of course, he's a genius director. And he's not intimidating at all because he knows that you can't intimidate an actor and get a good performance from them. So being on vinyl um, uh, was great. Of course, working with Armand Garrow, who played Galasso, Mm -hmm. you know, to my to my to my character, which is um, Del Greco. Love the name. Um, uh, You know, I'd worked with him before. Now I was doing Sinner. I was finishing up Sinner um, in South Carolina. And I thought I had, and the, all the casting had basically been done. So I remember talking to, I think Chris who was one of the leads in, in, uh, he played Jessica Beals, um, uh, boyfriend. And, um, I remember asking him, you know, did you get called in for the Irishman? He said, no, I said, I didn't get called in either. But I, I got back to New York and a couple of weeks later, Eric Faber, my ma- a manager, he called me up today. They want to read you for Irishman. Said, really, man, isn't it too late? They started production. They had started in September, and yeah. I got the call like in early October. Uh, no, in the middle of September, but they had started production late August. So I don't think there was any chance of me being in it. So when it, when it came, when it, the audition came, of course, yeah. I mean, went to see Ellen Lewis, and she gave me some notes, and I just enjoyed doing it. And it was it was a great experience working with Robert De Niro. It was a dream come true. Um, the last, I'll just talk to you a little bit about the take, you know, the last take was, it was basically Marty coming around saying, okay, now do it your way. Uh, just do, just throw everything out, you know, and just do it. And I did. And I added some lines like the receding hairline and, and that's the take that Marty used. I mean, so. Wow. It, Active freedom, and but I, you know, I use Steve's aliens. I'm not, I'm not near any cup, anywhere near Steve's aliens, writer of Gladiator, you know. But uh, Marty gets these improvs from the actors that, are, and but I think the actors, like myself, are indigenous and know the the territory. Yeah, Marty had, you know, trusted me that I knew the territory, and I do. I mean, I grew around, grew up around these guys in Brooklyn and right. stuff like that. So he let it fly, let me fly, so to say. And I thought we came up with a good take. You know, and it kept me around too. That's the great thing about Marty. Now, talking about the script, I heard it did go through a big process of of being produced. Uh, mm-hmm. 
I thought Hulu was going to produce it, and then Hulu, Netflix wound up producing it. Yeah. And, and I think that Marty wanted to tell a story his way. It was a three-hour film. Everyone said, hey, man, it's too long. But I got to tell you something right now. Wait, if you saw it in the, in the, in the theater, which I saw it in the theater on 57th Street, um, one of the premier theaters, it was great. I enjoyed it so much. It wasn't long to me in the theater. Now, oh. on TV, maybe it is long because you're sitting down, you got the family coming in and out, they're doing things and everything. But in the theater, I remember going to see the Ten Commandments and same yeah. thing it was two hours or something. I mean, the, the, the Led Zeppelin seven-minute song. You want a genius? I mean, come on, sit down and watch this movie. I mean, people are going to appreciate The Irishman another five and, and ten years because that's a, a lot of yeah. Marty's films, yeah. not a, all of Marty's films, I'm just saying they really appreciate it later on down the road. And they're yeah. going to appreciate yeah. the performances, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, De Niro, uh, Bobby Carnival, Ray yeah. Romano, myself. Har- Harvey Cattell in there. I mean, just. Yeah. Harvey Cattell. I mean, uh, all those small performances, everything. Uh, it's like, a, he's a great composer. Like any yeah, of my He's a composer, <laughs> but it did go through that trajectory of, uh, you know, but I think the only way for Marty to do it his way was to have Netflix uh, produce it because no one wants to produce a three hour, a three hour film. They felt, but then again, wait, I'm just, I'm just digressing a little bit. You know, it got a great review in the times and I am positive that if they didn't limit the performances because they wanted to have the performances in the theaters to give it its right, just, uh, rewards for the Academy. Right. You know what I'm saying? Um, but if they went full blast in the movie theaters, I know, cause they say it lost money. I know for a fact, I know the first two weekends it would have recouped all the money, but listen, that's oh, yeah. what Netflix wanted to do. And in a way they kind of knew what the pandemic was coming and everyone would be locked in. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I remember watching that film. I want to say it dropped around Thanksgiving. I believe it was somewhere around there because my family, I had to work, and my wife had took our kids back to visit her family, which is about two hours away. So I was coming home by myself, and I was stoked because I'm like, all right, I'm coming home. The Irishman's out. I got the house to myself. Nobody's going to bother me. And I watched it straight through, and I'm like, you, it was so good that it didn't seem like a three hour long movie. Now, if you want to watch it a second and a third time, it can, might can seem a little long because you've already kind of got a gist of what it is, but watching it through that first time, I mean, it was, it went through fast. And yeah, I mean, down you wanted to see it, but you know I mean? Yeah, I, I get you. I, yeah. And I'm telling you that if you saw it in the movie theaters, it was just fabulous to see on the big screen. Yeah. Oh, I bet it. I bet it was. And fabulous. you talked about Bobby, kind of out of it. he was in vinyl too right wasn't he in vinyl too yeah, he was lead in vinyl he was the lead in vinyl yeah now i mean i don't know why the series was ended they, they i don't either much money but who the hell know who the heck knows i mean what well, i don't know if you called his performance in boardwalk empire or not uh no, Jip, the boardwalk empire yes is jip rosetti i mean he killed that and i'll tell you a quick story we've already gone over and i told you how long i keep you but the conversation's just been great yeah, so we're gonna, we're gonna wrap it up man <laughs> but if you have any more questions yeah he played Jip all night about film. I love film. I, and, and, me too, man. And he played Jip Rosetti in Boardwalk Empire. And so we're in a club one night and I'm with some buddies and I, I met this person. We were talking and she's like, what's your name? And back home, everybody knows me as Chip. Well, down here in Charleston, everybody kind of calls me Wade. And now when I've started this podcast, I'm going by Wade. 
So I said chip, and I guess she couldn't hear me up under the, the lights and the sounds and everything. So she goes, did you say Jip? And I said, yes, Jip Rossetti. Yes, nice to meet you. And so I just went and I used his name from Boardwalk Empire. <laughs> but I mean, he that was he killed that role, you know, 100%. And I loved him in vinyl. I loved him as, as uh, what was Skinny Razor and the Irishman. I mean, he killed all you guys are fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I thought... Uh... Vida was very underrated. I, I I don't see why he didn't go another three or four seasons. I mean, but obviously, yeah, I, mean, I mean, you know, listen, uh, maybe some of the producers weren't happy with the way it was, the direction it was going. I, I don't know. I thought it was good. Yeah, Olivia Wilde in there. I mean, a, a yeah. star-studded cast for sure. I mean, look, that was the the, the record business. I mean, I, I do believe that that was an idea that uh, Mick Jagger, you know, had. Yeah presented it to Marty and, and, and they, and then they wrote, it was an idea that he kept in the back of his mind and, and they wrote the script and Terry Winter wrote the script, a great writer, um, award-winning writer, won, won the award for the Emmy for members only best dramatic episode. I was very proud of yeah. that also being a part of that. Yeah. Best dramatic episode of season six. Mm-hmm. Uh, not many times you get, you're involved in that kind of a, a episode. So I was really honored to be in, in that. And, uh, I mean, you know, it it really took on the record industry. It's it's the wise guys involved in it. I mean, I have people in my life that, you know, I work with. Al Martino was one from The Godfather who played Johnny Fontaine. His story mm-hmm. was he had to leave America because he was contracted with some wise guys and from Philadelphia, and he and he went to London and he did some out. This is after he was successful, right? He had to, he had to live in London for a while, and he had, and then he. He came back to America and he wrote uh, Buffalino. He got in touch with Buffalino, and he got a sat and a sat down sit down meeting with him, and he and he and he told him what happened, and uh, and Buffalino said to Al, uh, "Can you prove it?" And Al went about. I'm not going to tell you how he did it, but he went about improving it, and. Uh, Buffalino said to him after he proved it, uh, you can start playing the cabarets here. I'm going to allow it, you know, and that's how he got back. So that's the way the record industry was. So it was very true. The wise guys and also Morris Levy. Yeah. Who was the uh, manager of, of Tommy James. If you ever read Tommy James uh, uh, autobiography, it's yeah. a great book. Yeah. He talks about Morris Levy and, and Tommy James and the Shondells of how he never made any money. Yeah. Yeah. He finally, I don't want to give away, but it's a great thing. I think he, you know, cause we're talking about vinyl. He was able, Levy got, got sick or something like that. And they couldn't find out how many, they couldn't, there were no numbers. All the records were destroyed. Right. And I think his manager, Lori came up with the idea, geez, what if we were to go to the label companies that press the labels, the labels themselves, and we got a number. And that's when he sued him. He got the number of the labels and he was able to get, recoup some of his money yeah, and and they there, touch, were no, there were no records yeah they touch on that in the sopranos as well hesh has kind of got a morris levy yes. feel yes. to him and then yes, it, that's true. That's yeah true. and a hit is a hit when they go back and they try to recoup some money i think the guy's name was jimmy willis in the episode but have bakeem woodbine in there um where they're trying to recoup some money from from guys that had done it a long time ago so yeah i mean chase was on top of a lot of that you know, for sure. Oh, yeah, I mean, the writer, the writer team of Robin and Mitch and and uh, and, and David Chase and uh, 
and Terry Winter, of course. I mean, there's these guys that read. That's all they do is read. They, they get ideas. They read and, and yeah. they make them. They make them. They make them. And they make movie magic. They put it. They put it into reality. Life imitates art. Art imitates life. Same thing, you know. We absolutely. Well, look here, man. I'm. We're gonna try to wrap things up. There's two things okay. I want to ask you here. The the last one. Have you seen the trailer for the Many Saints of Newark? I have. I don't know about you. And I mean, obviously it's got to be more profound because you working on that show and you work with Jimmy and you knew him personally, but that opening sequence, when you hear Jimmy talking, when you hear him saying, you know, guys like me grew up with a code and then you see that's his son in the phone booth. I shit you not. I got chills running down my arms. Seeing that Michael is, is a fine actor and uh, it's very tough to to walk in your father's footsteps but i th- i think that he's surrounded by people in his family that are down to earth as jimmy was to to not make it get to his head yeah he's proven himself in cherry he's proven himself in some films and i'm sure he's going to deliver a, a great performance because he's a brilliant actor to be uh and he's growing and growing and growing and uh, he gets to play his dad as a young man. How many people can boast of that? I mean, yeah. so, I mean, yeah, I loved it. it. Gave me chills too. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't wait I to see it. To, I think certain things like um, uh, the way the country is going, you know, the delay in, in the film and, and opening it, there's a lot of different factors, but I'm yeah. sure it's going to be good. You know oh. what I mean? Cause we have to wait cause of COVID and, whatever you know yeah i think it was supposed to be out like earlier this year and then it got pushed back to september and now i think it's like the first of october so it's just like i keep getting my hopes up and then it's pushed back but i I can't wait i think it's going to be fantastic yes the trailer it's so hard when you're messing with a fine piece of artwork like the sopranos was as a whole it's a fine line because you don't want to you don't want to do something to disvalue it by doing a movie but yeah, Alan Taylor is directing it. He was one of the original directors. Uh, and, and you're right. So finish what you're saying. So right. Yeah, I'm what, well, no. Yeah. I mean, that's that's basically it. I mean, I, you don't want to disvalue the work you did as a soprano. So that's well, always and, a fear. Yeah. Well, the same thing as Michael Gandolfini having to deal with acting and, and the critics, you know, in his dad's, you know, people comparing him. Right. You know, I mean, it's it's very tough. And it's very tough to match. How many times have we seen remakes and they were horrible? Right. I, mean, I don't think the Godfather three was the original script. If I ever meet Francis, I'll ask him. Cause I talked to Richard and he was telling me that, uh, well, I think it's public knowledge that Robert Duval wanted to get paid a little bit more money than they wanted to pay him. Right. And they weren't going to pay him what he asked for. I don't know what it was. I don't know how many million dollars it was, whatever it was. And uh, because of that, I mean, the film had to suffer because they had, they had to probably change it around. Oh, yeah. Probably broaden uh, Al Neary's part with Michael because mm-hmm. you know, he played a bigger part in the in the in the uh, Godfather three. Now, you know, I heard that Winona Ryder was supposed to play not taking away from anything from Sofia Coppola, because to me, I, I mean, everyone complains about her. And I I thought she was good. In good yeah. it. I, mean, I thought she was good, too. But I mean. I heard that Winona Ryder was was uh, auditioned for the role, and that uh, she was talked out of it. 
Really? I'm not sure. Yeah. Wow. By someone, I'm not going to name names, but someone very close to her uh, talked her out of the role, saying that to her that uh, it would ruin her career. <laughs> I mean, how could that ruin your career? Yeah. And you're going to be in The Godfather with Francis Cope. That's the stupidity of ego. I mean, to me at least, I mean, I would, I mean, I don't care how big I was, if a great artist asked me to be in his film like Francis Coppola. You're going to do one it. one of the greatest American directors ever. Yeah. I mean, but that's the hubris in, in, in you know, in, in your head, like you're doing, you're making money, you're making great art, but you, you let it, I think you let it get ahead of yourself, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And that yeah. was, that was I mean, a- not, I never worked with an owner. I mean, maybe it's not true, but I heard a rumor, maybe, so I don't know. I bet she's kicking herself now. I, I know there was a podcast that I listened to. There was a lady and I, I the name escapes me right now. I hate it when that happens, but she was, no, she was, a, but I, I happens all the time. I walk into rooms. I forget what I need, man. <laughs> They'd say that prevagen with the jellyfish helps, but I, my brother, the doctor says it don't help at all. So I don't know who to believe. <laughs> she was an actress and she got, she got shot and killed by a obsessed fan. But she had gotten a script. I want to say it was for one of the Godfathers. And the reason why she opened the door was she thought that was a script being delivered for that. She was going to be getting the script to read for it. And at that particular time when she opened the door, it was a fan and he shot her. I can't remember the name of it. I just listened to that podcast. Yeah. It wasn't that Spanish singer. What's her name? Um, No, no. Selena. No, it wasn't her. It was it was an actress. Um, I have to go back. I listen to so many podcasts throughout the day. Like that's kind of all I do is listen to different podcasts. So, so many of them they blend together. You're a, Wade, you wouldn't believe on how people get roles. You know, people own gambling debts to to actors, and and they get a role because they own the debt. They're a producer, and I could tell you, I have a few stories, but it's not. I mean, it's we just go on and on. But you know, casting is an interesting. It's interesting how uh, fulcrum and leverage has to do with it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm I mean, sure. for instance, like now we come up against as actors, like um, if there's a lead actor in a film with the agent and the agent submits some of the other actors, um, I'm not saying that the casting directors are, uh, are kind of forced into hiring the other actors, but it's definitely, I think, considered because of the big actor that they were given. They're going to consider them because the big actor that said yes to the film. Right. So there's a group of actors coming from an agency that are being considered, not saying they're getting the role and the casting director is great. Uh, and, uh, I mean, they do their job and they great films are cast by great casting directors. Right. It takes a, uh, like a village. Yeah. Community, and everyone adds to the, the greatness of a film starting with that too. But um, there's a lot of this, this, this deals made and everything. I'm not being a bitter actor. I'm just saying that right. that happens to happen a lot of times with, you know, maybe more in film acting than in theater. Oh, know? well, and, and then things other than that, I, I spoke to you earlier. I was a welder and I worked for a steel company for about 14 years. And it was one of the biggest steel companies in the world. It was called Nucor. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's one of the top steel companies in the world. And people used to joke because it was in the neighborhood where I grew up, which was in Darlington, South Carolina. You knew all the guys' parents that worked at Nucor. They drove the new cars and the, the Corvettes. And it was just, 
That was a kind of a low-income town, but if you worked out there, you knew who worked out there. And they said Nucor stood for nieces, uncles, cousins, and other relatives because that's the only way you could get a fucking job out there was because you had to know somebody. <laughs> and that was that was the inside joke. And I was able to land it later on. I wound up having to get one in Columbia, South Carolina. And I worked there for like seven years. And then I transferred here to Charleston. But it's just like that, too. I mean, you, they have that kind of inside lane. You might be the better man for the job, but that inside cousin, he's going to get it over you. Many people auditioned for Ralph Seferetto, Ray Leo, you know, Ray, a, a lot of people auditioned for it. I landed the role. Let's face it. James was my agent. Right. I had no one. I, I wasn't even, James asked me if I'd been acting. I lied. I said, yeah, I've been acting. You kidding me? All the time. I do this, I do that. I didn't tell him I wasn't acting. I never worked professionally on film until that season i had my apprenticeship the greatest apprenticeship wow. a, a, an actor can get although there's a lot of pressure uh, and there was a lot of a lot of you know after getting ralph and then i would say like asked to step down and, and to resign from it you know because it wasn't working out it was i was dealing with that too everyone looking at me on set well look at that guy you know look at bobby man he was and now he's Eugene, you know, that's got to be like, how do you live with that? You know, well, I didn't fucking kill myself. Yeah. I had my family and, and my friends who to fall back on to, you know, to kind of work out with them and tell me to keep going. My mother and father, you know, and, 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 you know, God to me, you know what I mean? And kept me going. And, and, and I, you know, I had the humility to keep going, you know, people talk on set, you know, and they say, you know, and so, um, I never would have got through it without the people around me. And I was happy at the end because I did what I could do, you know, the yeah. best I could do. And I, I was damn pleased. Well, you, it was good enough. You know? Yeah. You persevered and you lasted a, a more seasons than Ralph Zaffaretto did. So you got some more checks in the mail for sure. That's right, Ralph. That's right, Wade. <laughs> you got, you put some steak on the table, I think, as Steve Sharippa says in the latest. Uh... <laughs> I think that other actors should know. I mean, it's not, I'm not the first one. I mean, I think that there was uh, other actors have been asked to, you know, have, things have happened to them and that their voices were replaced. So these are things you deal with as an actor. I think it's important. You know, at first, some people would say, why would you tell that? Why? Because I'm telling it for the other actors that's happened to so they don't give up that they right. keep going and know that they got there because of their talent may not work out for now but they got there for a reason and then if they keep going they can have a successful career which is what happened to me i'm very blessed that i had a successful career maybe not measured in the eyes of the greatness of that inner circle but in my eyes because you always got to please the inside of yourself first and no matter what right you measure yourself because when you're down surprised, you had to see me, people, my best friends, friends, people, and they call me up. And I said to myself, wow, how plastic is that? These people called some of these people, not the family members who really were really happy that I got on the show, but some people that I haven't heard in years, all of a sudden they're my best friends. So I said to myself, you know, Rob, I've learned one thing, if anything, from this whole experience, that others can't measure who you are, that you can only measure who you are by who you are. You measure yourself. You please the inside of yourself first and then everything else. People, they're going to have their opinion of you, good or bad. Yep. But you see how they're my friends, you know, Wade? So just goes to show you, you know, be pleased with who you are. 
Absolutely. <laughs> you got you got to live with yourself. So, you know, you know, you said it perfect. Be pleased with who you are. And not, not opinion of you. Yeah, not everything is meant to work out. Sometimes when a door closes, it in effect opens another door you were supposed to go through anyway. Um, there's been lots of times and that's in life, you know, not just with acting, but you know, other jobs, I've not gotten jobs in the past that I really wanted, but it, but it opened up me being able to take another job that wind up working better. You know, at the time I was a little disheartened, but you know, later on down the road, it turned out to be the right move. So, you know, don't, don't get discouraged. Keep pressing forward. Just like you said, and this has turned out to be a great career for you. Um, We're going to wrap this up, man. My last question I'd like to ask, especially with the Sopranos, outside of your death scene, what is probably your most memorable moment? It can be on camera, off camera, whatever. Most memorable moment on the Sopranos. Okay. Uh, When we did the golf scene, uh, when um, me and Tony are in the golf cart, and then he has some people that he's, I don't know if you recall that episode. Uh, Think so. uh, I was, I was, I kind of, you see me for a second and I tell Tony, I'll, I'll see him later. Yes. Yes. I think he deal. meets up with Carmine or something like that after that. We, talk, we talk about some gibberish. We talk about something. I'll see you later. And well, you know, James, of course, is my good friend. So we're in right. the golf cart and we're doing a couple of takes and we got to pull, I got to pull a golf cart and hit the mark. It was kind of a pain in the ass to hit the mark. and <laughs> But anyway, we just kept going, kept doing maybe three or four takes. So on one take, we go all the way back to the pond. And Jimmy says to me, listen, Rob, Bobby, if you take the golf cart and you drive it into the pond right now, I'll give you $5,000. Drive it into the pond. Because, you know, to James, it's like, I mean, you know, he has done so well. I mean, he just wanted to have some fun. He's yeah. like John Lennon, you know, on the set. <laughs> so, James, you really will? I mean, I started laughing my ass off. And I thought about it. And I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. He said, yeah, go ahead, do it, do it. And I said, wait a second. If I drive this into the fucking pond and you break your arm or something happens to you, crook your neck, and we stop the season, I'm going to be definitely written out of this show. <laughs> I'm not going to be, well, maybe I will, but no, but I'll be responsible for hurting Tony Soprano actor Robert for now drives into the pond. <laughs> I said, I can't deal with that pressure. Yeah. I said no to him. We had a good laugh on it, but that was my, one of the greatest moments of funnier moments that I had. And this, uh, this, uh, I told the story to, uh, John Podersky. He's an artist. He, he, um, he, he did this artist. If I can grab the painting, I want to show it to you. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Your program really great. Give me a second. Yeah, grab it. yeah, grab it. This is the painting. Ah, oh, man. Oil painting, and it has golf carts. See the golf. It's framed with the golf clubs. Okay. You know. And uh, see it? Wow, yeah, yeah, that's and uh, see James, look over here, yeah, that's what prompted me. <laughs> he was so bored <laughs> of doing this, this, this scene. He said, drive the golf cart, and that's me and him laughing on the left. So, John had you know, he had depicted that. Kind that's of perfect. Strong. So it's a great real painting. He really did a he really did a great job. That's yeah. perfect. And that's just how Jim looked in some of the scenes. Like you can look and he's got that that scowl on his face. 
And then he's got the happy look on his face when he's enjoying himself. That really, that's captured definitely in that photo there, in that painting. Yes. Yeah, in the painting. Yes. So that's, that's how we're on your show. (laughs) Wait. But that's good, man. I, I know Chrissy or uh, Michael Imperioli said when he his first, like, it's like the first scene when he's driving him in the car, he said he didn't even have a license. And he wrecked the car, and James kind of banged his knee, and he said he was kind of looking over it like, is he going to be upset or whatever? Say so he just started laughing, and you know he knew right then he was going to be in good hands just because of how Jimmy took it. But yeah, he didn't even have a license driving that thing. He told him he did, but he didn't. That's amazing. <laughs> That is, man. Well, look here. I am super glad you came on the show. It's been fun. I've enjoyed talking to you. We we toggled a little bit, but eventually I knew I would. uh, And you were persistent enough to keep knocking on the door and saying, let's do this. You know, I got a lot of stuff going. Well, not a lot of stuff going on, but you know how life goes. Yeah. I mean, we we know you had the the comic con come up and then you're on vacation. And I said, you know, look, we can do this at your convenience. You know, I don't want to, you know, don't put anything aside. If you got something to do, do it. But I definitely wanted to sit down with you and talk with you. And just like I thought it would be, it's been a fantastic episode for sure. Thank you, Wade. And uh, you've been one of the best interviewers I've worked with. Really. Well, well thank you, man. That means a lot. I'm, I'm just getting started here. So I'm kind of warming know, things man. up and I, I'm excited about it. It's been fun. It's been a fun ride. And this is, it's my favorite TV show. Like I said earlier, I rewatch it all the time. Probably once a year, I rewatch it. So my wife probably knows about as much as the show by now to me. And I tell her, I was like, oh, I'm interviewing Eugene Pontecorvo. You know, his character, I'm interviewing him. And, you know, she's she's excited and I'm excited. So it's, it's been a fun time. Right but, on, uh, I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Robert Fanara. I am Hollywood Wade, and unfortunately, we are out of time. Go ahead and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. This podcast will be put out everywhere you get your podcast: Spotify, Google, Apple, all of them. And this interview here in its entirety will be uploaded to our YouTube channel. Robert, we couldn't thank you enough, my friend. We appreciate it, and have a good Ciao. one. Thank you, Wade. Thank you very much. Ciao, everyone. Thank you, sir. Keep on watching. Keep on. Don't stop believing. (laughs) That's right. All right. Ciao. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a good interview there with Mr. Fanara. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, I love the Sopranos. You know, I love the Sopranos. And I get a kick out of any time where I can use the quotes on there that he used. And there's one, and I think it's in the early seasons where somebody's knocking on the door. I actually think it's the police. And AJ's sitting there on the door. And then Tony comes by and he's like, don't you hear the door? And he looks at him. He says, I'm in the middle of a game. He looks back at him. He says, you're going to be in the middle of the fucking streets. You don't wise up. And he goes and answers the door. <laughs> Not too long ago, I was upstairs and I kept hearing somebody knock on the door. I come down, wonder why my son wasn't opening. I thought he might've been gone. I thought it might've been him. So I come down the stairs and he's sitting there on the couch. I said, don't you hear somebody knocking on the door? He's like, I'm in the middle of a game and I couldn't wait. That's like, it was like, it's been brewing and marinating for years. I was like, you're in the middle of the fucking streets. You don't wise up over here. Open the door. <laughs> I mean, it's just those little moments you live when you get to throw those lines out and probably not in a whole lot of people know what you're talking about, but it's really funny to you. They've got another one. I want to say it's in like the fifth season where uncle junior keeps breaking Tony's balls about being a varsity athlete. And they're sitting there at the kitchen table and he says it for like the third time. And Tony finally just gets pissed and he gets up and he tells AJ, he's like, get your coat. We're leaving. He's like, I don't have a coat. He said, well, get moving. God damn it. 
<laughs> so anytime I'm ready to go, I just tell Jax to get up and grab his coat. A man usually doesn't have a coat because he doesn't wear one, so I get to use that here and there. But a very, very quotable show, nonetheless. And when he was talking about the scene that he got to film with uh, Tony or Jimmy Gandolfini there at the end, I realized what he was talking about after it went off. It was a slight scene when he come up and it was right after that scene that I was just referring to where he wasn't talking to his uncle for quite a while. And then they come pulling up on the golf cart and the doctor happened to spot Tony and was basically telling him that junior was kind of going down the road of the dementia, you know, kind of losing it upstairs. And Robert said, you know, in the interview, as you heard, he had tried to come up and hit that spot numerous times and he said Tony was just going to, he was prepared to pay money just to drive the damn golf cart in the lake. Now they would have to take whatever takes they had and, and make it work. But he was like, <laughs> you know, if I drive you in the lake, you might get hurt. And then they're probably going to write me off the show. I just can't do it. So great, great stuff during that interview. What'd you think of the interview, Jaeger? Fantastic as always, pal. Nothing but illustrious guests coming out on air and stealing out from Deep as a Marrow. But it's true, though. It's another round. A fantastic guest, a fantastic conversation on crime and entertainment. <laughs> that's definitely the case. And that's what we're trying to do for you here, folks. We're trying to give you what we like, what we know our audience is going to like. Look, we know not everybody's going to dig what we're doing, and that's fine. But for those of us that do, do us a favor. Run on over there to Facebook. Throw us a like on Facebook. Run on over there to Instagram. Follow us on Instagram. Go to our YouTube channel where this interview will be put up in its entirety, folks. And there's a lot of them on there. You'll find them with all our guests. You'll find them with Brian O'Day, the famous pot smuggler. You'll find them with Lilo Brancato Jr., also star of Sopranos and Bronx Tale, Renaissance Man, Crimson Tide. You'll find with John Fiore, also a star of Sopranos. Lisa Wilcox, the woman who went one-on-one with Freddy Krueger not once but twice and lived to tell about it. <laughs> it is interviews galore over there. David Gant, the man who stole $17 million from Loomis Fargo. J.D. Williams, the man that played Bodie in The Wire and also Wangler in Oz. And we actually have some sad news. Now, we're hearing this a little bit earlier. This is not going to be related to when this episode actually drops. But Michael K. Williams was just found passed away. And he played Omar in the uh, series The Wire. That's some tragic news there. That was a fantastic actor. Totally one of my favorites. Chalky White was it in Boardwalk Empire. I'm Chalky sure White. Of that you watched. Yes. Um, and, of course, everything he was in, he was just magic. The dude just signed up a star and i believe it was a george foreman movie he was going to be starring in and that was just about six days ago as i was checking the news wire so definitely he was still working but yep just recently as we're recording probably less than an hour ago the news started coming out over the internet absolutely just a tragic you hate to see that like i said that man was a fantastic actor um, just killed whatever role they put him in i mean he took that role and, and we talked about it in the jd williams episode he took that role that probably not many people would have taken in Oz, you know, re- realizing that that guy is playing, you know, homosexual. They probably wasn't have been too keen on taking that role, but he took it and fucking ran with it. And just, there, you oh, wouldn't, yeah. have, you couldn't imagine anybody else better. I mean, he embodied that role. He made everybody in the whole town scared of him. And I mean, I don't it's know iconic. if anybody could have done it better. Totally iconic role in TV history. Yeah, I'll stand by that statement. Very iconic role. You know, when you turn into a, a GIF or a GIF or a meme, <laughs> the Omar memes are, are still used consistently. 
till this day. So people might know that character and they might not even know what show it's from as we go through time here. But Obar definitely left a mark. Michael K. Williams definitely left a mark. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Well, folks, that about does it for this episode of crime and entertainment. We've got some more good ones lined up. We have tentatively lined up Marty Ray from the Marty Ray project. That man does a ton of stuff. Great, great singer. He does cover songs that are just unbelievable. That should be a good interview. We got that lined up coming down the pipe. A star from one of our favorite movies as a kid growing up, Monster Squad. You remember Monster Squad, Jaeger? I went back and revisited Monster Squad not too long ago. So, yeah, I remember that, pal. Yeah, we've got (laughs) some kids coming over from that one. That should be a fun interview. We got them coming in from all across the board here. So I tell you what, if you're just finding us, go on and start from episode one, work your way up. It's going to be a fun ride here, and we want all you guys along for this ride with us. I am Hollywood Wade. That was my co-host, Jaeger Yancey Tedder. And unfortunately, we are out of time. Join us back next week right here on Crime and Entertainment.